Well, this is where I usually say, let's come back together and find your seats. Um, I guess we could say that couches over there, easy chairs over there. I don't know, however you're watching. But um, some of us on worship team were talking beforehand and we can't wait to when we're together worshiping again. We can't wait just to hear each other's voices, to hear 200 people raise their voices and worship to God. Um, and, and it'll come soon. We miss you guys right now. And right now you just have to sing louder so we hear you through the camera. And, um, but we know we're worshiping together. One of the things that, that we prayed and that I want to, to just reiterate is I know a lot of people are going through a lot of things with the, the shutdown. And some of you have lost jobs. Some of you have lost income. And we as an elder board are trying to pray for every one of you that has lost income. But if there are any needs, if there is, is um, a loss of income that's causing not paying bills and some other needs, please let us know. We're family. And, and we want to be sure to help each other out and to be caring for each other in that way. Really, that, that's what we're going to be talking about today is brotherly love and how we show that and what God's view of brotherly love is. And is he pleased with that? And, and he is. You know, this um, shutdown has enabled all of us to be at home more. And one of the things at home that's really interesting is we have this neighborhood cat that isn't ours. I'll just reiterate, it is not our cat that somehow has adopted us and thinks it's our cat. And, And not that my family may have contributed to that with food and they're all pointing at the culprit. Um... But this cat thinks it's our cat, and so now it just lives on our back porch, and, and we wave to the neighbors who own the cat every now and then, but, but this cat thinks it's our cat. And what has started to happen in the last few weeks is this cat knows we're home, and it is trying to contribute to the family. And the way that it contributes is to go catch food for the family. And, and when it catches these various kinds of food that we will not eat, by the way, it sits at the back door and it just sits there with this look on its face, if a cat can, can have expressions, that looks like, aren't you pleased with me? I, I helped. I helped. This, this dead bird here, this is a gift. This dead rat, this is a gift. This lizard, I, I could go on and on. This is not a one-time thing. It's like every other day. And this cat looks like it's trying to please us. And I don't know. I don't know that cats have that kind of thought. But it, it, it's there like, are you happy? Look at what I've done and, and just so proud of himself. And I was thinking about that as we come to today's text because we, and we as humans are like that. We have people we want to please. We all have people we want to please. And so maybe I'm projecting on this cat because it's just a cat. But, but we, we want to please our parents sometimes. We want to please our spouse. We want to please a coworker, a boss. And, and we want to please, but ultimately we should want to please God. And ultimately, that is our goal. You know, when, when I would get home when the kids were younger, it, often I would get um, drawings or something and, or a description of what they've done that day. And, and why are they doing that? It, it's not because they just have to get it out. They're trying to please dad. They're trying to connect with dad. They're trying to build that relationship and they want dad's approval. So we can all understand when we come to this text, wanting someone's approval and wanting to please them. And this is going to be the main point that Paul rests on as he writes to the church at Thessalonica. Our duty, our job, our pleasure is to please God. That is our goal. That is the ultimate goal. That is the big picture of how we should view life as we live it here. 
And so we come to 1 Thessalonians 4, and if you turn there, we're going to be looking at verses 1 and 2 and verses 9 through 12. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we come to a point where Paul now switches to instruction. And he's, up to this point, been encouraging. He's, he's prayed for the church. He's talked about how thankful he is. He's talked about what his ministry to them looked like. But now in chapter 4, he gets to some instruction. And this is application. This is very practical instruction because Paul never divorces doctrine from application and never divorces our behavior from what we know. And so he makes sure that we come to this point. And if you look at verse 1, it starts with finally. One of the most misunderstood words in the text. Because some will say, okay, finally, yeah, he's, he's, he's ending. He's getting to the, the conclusion. And he goes on for a couple more chapters with 50 more instructions, just like Pastor Ron. The word for finally here actually doesn't mean that. The word for finally is, now on to the other things I need to talk about. And, and so this is a transitional thing where Paul has, has built the relationship. He has encouraged But now he gets to his main point of what he wants to talk about when he talks about pleasing God and having every area, not just one or two, every area of our lives please God. And so we see in verses 1 and 2 what his request is, what he finally gets to or the main thing he wants to talk about. Finally then brothers or brothers and sisters, and he's still using this family language because they're dear to him. Finally then brothers, We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instruction we gave you through the Lord Jesus. And so he comes to his his big idea, his big request, the big ask. And you have that at the top of your notes, the urgent request. And this is the main point of the morning. Focus on pleasing God more every day. Focus on pleasing God more every day. And, and every word there is important because that should be our focus. That should be our goal, our desire, what we're thinking about. But it's something we're growing in. It should be increasing every day. And we see all that in these first two verses. So Paul here, as he gives the admonition, he starts by saying, finally then, brothers, we ask and we urge. Those are two different words there that give this sense of urgency. And ask is more of, I'm making this request Urge is more of, it's more than a request. And these are, these are combined. And, and whenever these are combined in the writing of the time, it really was a polite way to challenge somebody to do something. A diplomatic way. So he's not just saying, do this because I'm an apostle and you have to do it. He's not wielding his power that way. But he's coming and influencing and asking all the while saying, this is vital. This is important. And so he says, I am asking and I am urging you to do this, to walk pleasing to God as we already saw in the text. The other phrase there, and and one of the things I keep saying about 1 Thessalonians and staff meeting and and to the elders are, it's just dense. 1 Thessalonians has all these commands right after each other that we want to unpack it. And I would use a pencil or a highlighter or something because that next phrase in the Lord Jesus is a vital phrase in this. Because Paul, Paul is saying a couple things with that phrase. He's urging them to live a life pleasing to God, to walk according to God. But he says, I'm doing this in the Lord Jesus. And what he means by that is actually twofold. The first is that the, the authority is coming from Jesus, right? 
The, the motivation is not Paul's word, not Timothy's word, not Silas's word, not Pastor Ron's word. He is saying the authority for this, the, the grounds for this is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is why you should walk in accordance with God. In fact, we know that Jesus in his example, Jesus said he desired to please God the Father. In John 8, 29, we read, And he who sent me is with me. This is Jesus talking. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And it was cool when I read this, because I thought, we're just, when, we, when we strive to please God, we're just following Jesus' example. His goal was to please the Father. And so that phrase, in the Lord Jesus, we see that he is the one that has the authority to ask this. But also in the Lord Jesus tells us who empowers it. And so many times we can look at how do I please God and make a checklist and do it, do this all on our own effort and work and just work harder and you'll be a better Christian. Well, as we've been talking about, about relationship and things, it comes from a walk with God. And when he urges them in the Lord Jesus, that is also the empowerment. As we draw close to Jesus, as we love him more, as, as we are blown away by his grace and understanding what he's done for us. Oh, the desire to please God comes from the Holy Spirit. And so, yes, we should try. And we, 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 our efforts are coupled with the Holy Spirit. But the power to do this is through Jesus Christ. And so Paul, as he's about to make this grand ask of live every, every part of your life pleasing to God, says you're doing this in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he begins to talk about pleasing God. And, and a couple of things there that are repeated in verse 1 and 2, and always take, take note of things that are repeated. Those are important. But one of the things that he's repeating is he wants them to remember that what they've been taught. He wants them to remember how to please God, to be calling it to mind, to, to um, remember the teaching that they had received. And so in verse 1 there, that as you receive from us how to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. And Paul is saying, this isn't new, but remember it. Call it to mind daily. This is not something that we do, and I pleased God, and I'm done. Now I can go on to other things this week. Right? No, no. Everything, every moment should be calling to mind, am I pleasing God? How should I walk with Him? And so Paul's asking them to remember that. And when we, when we use the word pleasing God, this is one of those words that, that I think um, we, we all sort of know what it means, but then it's all sort of gray and nebulous at the same time. And, and, and so a couple of definitions that helped me, one of them was serving God, to please God is to serve him in a way that makes his interests my primary goal. Uh, that's pretty cool. Pleasing God serves him in a way that makes his interests my primary goal or my primary ambition. It's not walking according to my own desires, my own wants, my, my own plan. That's pleasing me, not God. It's shifting a mindset to say, how can I please God with everything I do? Now, now that's countercultural because everything that is pounded into us is how can I please me with everything I do? But this is how can I please God? It's more than working in obedience, although obedience is good, but this is more than just obedience. That leads to a legalistic, stale faith. This is a desire to work for his pleasure. 
This is the child that comes with the paper as you walk in the door and say, Dad, do you like it? That's the same desire that we come to God with, with our lives. And every day we should say, Dad, did you like it? Did you like how I lived today? Did you like what I did for you today? It's, it's that childlike desire that is so precious as we work to please God. See, one of the things that, that is, is so prevalent, like I said, is we want to please me. And we have phrases that say this, right? I'm going to do as I please. We use the same word. This is not some like spiritual word. I'm going to do as I please. In fact, that's the foundation for my rights and my liberty. I would argue that's the core of the current unrest. Ooh, we're, we're getting a little personal. Because people aren't able to do as they please. And so now we're protesting and now we're upset. And, and I'm not making a political statement of whether we should protest or not. I, I think there are legal ways to express your opinions. But I think we have to realize it's tapping in to some, some self-centeredness that I want to do as I please. And before you send all the emails, I know there's different sides to this. I see both sides. I'm on both sides. So, so, um, but I think we need to be careful of our motivations. Am I so upset right now because I just can't do what I please? Or are there other reasons? And there's other valid reasons. Don't get me wrong. But this helped me see and ask the question, do I live to please God every day? Is that what I'm filtering events through? Is that what I'm filtering my moments through? Paul says, you know what instructions we gave. You know the instructions we gave through the Lord Jesus. And again, he's appealing to the authority of God here and saying, this is, I'm not talking my instructions, he says, but the instructions from God. And so for us, that would translate to scripture because that's God's instruction to us. Remember what scripture has said and how you please God. The other part of this isn't just remembering, but Paul is challenging them to remember this daily, right? To do so more and more. And the idea is to be abundantly ever increasing. That every day there should be more. That if you're filling a a water glass with something, every day it should be fuller. And then abundant means it should be overflowing. That our desire to please God should just be overflowing on every part of our life. Ever increasing. We're to work at it every day. And he he encourages them and says, you're doing this. You're, you're, You're living a life pleasing to God. And he's encouraging a new church. And he's saying, now grow in it. And again, it's a reminder to me that none of us ever arrive. If we get to the point and say, well, you know, I am living a life perfectly pleasing to God. I don't have to work on anything anymore. Well, let's start with pride. Um, let's start with some other issues. Because we always have room to grow in this. And we should always be seeking to grow in this because our heart is to please God. It should overflow, this desire to please God should overflow into every part of our life so there's just no room for anything else. You know, we've done that illustration with the glass and how do you get there out? You fill it with water. The, the, the same is true of pleasing God in our life. If that becomes our consuming desire that Paul is urging us and asking us to do, then that consumes us. You know, I mentioned at the beginning and this thought was helpful to me is we all live to please someone. So this isn't a question of, am I pleasing someone? We all live to please someone. But who will it be? 
Will it be all those other people or will it be Jesus? And our primary goal should be to please Jesus. Who do you want to please? Now, now understand this. I'm not saying that those are mutually exclusive, but sometimes they are. And the issue is which one is priority, right? Which one is primary? If my primary goal is to please Jesus and I'm acting in a way to please Jesus, then I can also do things that please my spouse. She likes that. That's good. Husbands, yeah, that's good. I can do things that please my parents. I can do things that please those around me if that's within the, the, the framework, the umbrella of pleasing God. Where we get into trouble is when we elevate pleasing someone else above pleasing God, and, and by definition, that becomes an idol. And idols never satisfy. They never work. And so in that case, now I'm willing to compromise to please others. I'm willing to compromise to please my boss because the priority isn't pleasing God. And so we've got to get this priority right. And when it's right, we can often do both. When it's wrong, we often do neither. That make sense? And so this is why this is a, a primary goal for Paul is to have people strive to please God. So then the question and, and where we want to go and where Paul goes with the, the next um, 10 verses or so, well, what pleases God? Wouldn't that be a natural, natural question? So that silly cat bringing a rat to our porch, that does not please us. It thinks it does. It does not please us, especially the boys who have to clean it up. And I think there's one out there. Um, so we need to ask what actually pleases God to do this right. And he gives two things in this passage, verses 3 through 8 and verses 9 through 12. And in 3 through 8, Paul writes, purity and holiness please God. Now, now here's the thing, and I hope you understand. We're going to skip this section today because it gets very specific about issues of purity. And I know that there are five and six and seven-year-olds in the room with you. The problem is, if we're to be true to God's word, we need to be pretty direct with that passage. And, and I'm not going to be that direct in front of your kids this morning. That's up to you. And so we're going to save that for when we're together and the kids are, are in, in kids' church. We're going to save that part, and we're going to jump down to verses 9 through 12, the second one. But I wanted to mention it because Paul is saying two major things that please God live a pure and holy life, and live out brotherly love. And so point number two there is living out brotherly love pleases God. How we act as a family, as his family, pleases God. You know, we've studied in the past, there's all kinds of verses that say how how sweet it is when brothers dwell together in harmony. And, And every parent knows that to be true. It is sweet when your kids get along and are in harmony. And it is agonizing when they don't. And so one of the things, the second thing that pleases God is living out brotherly love. Now, interestingly enough, these are two of the things that were just remarkable about Christianity at the time. These were things that set Christianity apart. It was their purity and their love for each other. And those are the two Paul goes to as things that please God. Now, there are certainly more things that please God. But in this text, and we're staying tethered to the text, these are the two that he mentions. So jump down to verse 9, and we'll take the second of the two, living out in brotherly love. And it's sort of fun, because as we, as we read through First Peter and are rooted online, we keep talking about brotherly love. And First Thessalonians keeps talking about brotherly love. And quite frankly, as I see how you all are interacting with each other and encouraging each other, 
You're examples of brotherly love. And so this is just a great encouraging text for us to, to remind ourselves to keep doing what we're doing. In verse 10, verse 9 rather, we read, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And like I said, First Thessalonians is just packed with, with riches and packed with things to unpack there. Um, now concerning brotherly love. And that word for brotherly love is, is a word we're familiar with. It's Philadelphia. Okay, you know, the city of brotherly love, you go there and everyone loves each other. It's perfect. Okay, that, that's what they were hoping for. But the word here is brotherly love, and that's why that's the city of brotherly love. Uh, and, and Paul here is, is talking about a kind of love that exists within the church, that exists between brothers and sisters in Christ, that should be substantively different than how we love others. It is in many ways better and sweeter. You know, I, I think about that. We know this. There is a, a special aspect of family love, right? There is some, usually, I know sheltering in place is challenging that, but, but there is something about family love. When, when I see my brother and sister, there is just something sweet about that. And, and, and there is something precious about that love because there is more added to love than, and, and, and more that I want to love, the more ways I want to love them than maybe I would a total stranger. And Paul's tapping into that. He says, this is brotherly love. And he's reminding us we're all children of one father. We are all children of God. We are all related. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so he's, he's encouraging them to a family love that pleases dad, that pleases the father. And, and think about a family love. In, in many ways, we cherish in a family. Or we should be cherishing in a family. We're loyal in a family. It, a family love is enduring. You're stuck with each other. Okay, my brother and sister are going to be my brother and sister the rest of my life. And so there's something special about that, that, that enduring aspect to that. It's a secure security. You know, the phrase that, that often is used is blood is thicker than water. When you're challenging someone and families coming together, blood is thicker than water. Well, village, we're all blood. We're brothers and sisters in Christ by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so that should be thicker than anything else. Even when we're sheltering in place for six weeks. So Paul says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And this, again, comes into the work of the Holy Spirit. As, as the work of the Holy Spirit sanctifies us, it will automatically bring a love for each other. The fruit of the Spirit is love. First one that's mentioned. And so the very, the very act of getting this relationship right, and we talked about this in First Peter this week, the very act of getting the, the vertical relationship right, growing in Christ, growing in holiness, God infusing his love to us, this, this by its very nature spreads to each other in the body of Christ or should spread to each other in the body of Christ. And Paul's saying, you've been taught by God, by, by, the, the, by virtue of the Holy Spirit working in your life, this is growing. Now, can we hinder it? Absolutely. We can hold on to an unforgiving spirit, as Miss Stephanie talked about today. We can hold on to grudges. We can despise each other. We can hinder it, 
But God, as you draw closer to him, is forming this brotherly love in you. And so he, he, he commends them to that. They've been taught by God to love one another. And in verse 10, for that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. And so he's saying this whole area you're in and Philippi and, and Berea and some of the other cities, all the Christians in those cities know you love them. Now think about that. Isn't that a cool thing? What, could we say that all the other churches in Garden Grove know that we love them? No, we, we couldn't. To our, to, our, to our detriment, we can't because we're, we're all isolated and we all spread out. But, but what he's commending them for is that they continued to show love or that they showed love outside even their own circles to other brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, we know from, from 2 Corinthians that there was major hardship in this area, that the churches were struggling, and it, it appears that at Thessalonica they may have had a li- some at least had a little bit more means. And so probably some of the ways they were showing brotherly love is financial support to others and financial support to other churches. But that's how the church should work. That's how the early church in Acts worked, where we prayed for, they prayed for each other and they supported each other and encouraged each other. This is a beautiful thing. And in that, in that hardship, their acts of love were able to shine bright. When we think about this, hardship becomes a canvas by which we can show our love to each other. When you look at a painting, nobody says... How incredible is that canvas? Some, well, maybe some art aficionados would, but no, no, you look at the painting. And in this case, the hardship for them became the backdrop. It became the canvas for this beautiful painting of brotherly love. Oh, the same is true of us right now. This time of hardship can be a canvas for us to show what it means to love each other. In village, out of village, to love the family of God. And one of the ways I think we can put this into practice is, is even begin by praying for other churches, by praying for them as they mean. We often do that on Sunday mornings when we pray, by praying for other pastors. We are not in competition. We are in battle together. And that's a whole different mindset of how we view churches. And, and, and so I love some of my friendships with other pastors and I pray for them. And, and some of them that you know, I, I pray for Pastor Scott and Pastor Ed at Community Bible Church. And, and Scott and I talk all the time and compare notes and how are we going to do this and how are we going to live stream and how are we going to... Because we're, we're, we're on the same team. So we pray for Pastor Scott and Pastor Ed. Pastor Rob at Orange Villa Bible Church, we pray for him. And now we have a connection there through the coxswains. And so we want to keep praying for them. Pastor Vicente, who meets here and who is live streaming from his living room. The ministry of the Korean church right across the street and the men's from there that we want to support as missionaries. Calvary West Grove on the other side of the city reaching West Garden Grove while we try to reach East Garden Grove. Pastor Scott at Covenant in Orange. These are just some of the people I know. Are we praying for these people? You probably have other lists. Do other churches know we love them? I hope so. I hope so. We need to find ways to make sure they do. That we care about them. That we're praying for their ministries. So Paul says, your example has been that your love is known throughout Macedonia, throughout the whole state for them, throughout the whole region. 
And then he comes back to his urging. But we urge you, brothers, not to be idle, not to rest on your laurels, not to think you've accomplished it. Okay, I added a few of those things in there. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Same phrase that's used back in verses 1 and 2, to abundantly have more and more of this every day. To keep doing it, to continue to grow in it. I think this also is an encouragement to love in even the hard situations. See, more and more might mean, yeah, you're doing great at brotherly love, but that person sitting in the corner that you don't care for, let's do this more and more. Let's improve in this area. And so Paul is saying near to the heart of God is that we excel in brotherly love. It's a a wonderful reminder of what we should be doing. And for me, it's, it's just interesting that the Holy Spirit has brought these passages up at this time when I think it's harder. We miss each other. When I get to see some of you from six feet away, face to face, it is precious and it is blessed and it's different even than Zoom. Because our hearts are are turned toward each other. But we need to find and keep growing in that love, even in this time. You know, in the last few weeks, Pastor Andrew and myself have encouraged you to write notes for people, to write prayers for people, to think outside of the box beyond what we recommend and think of creative ways to love people. Maybe that's gifts or secret drop-offs. I'm hearing all these things happen in Village, and it is awesome. It is awesome. I watch people on Zoom meetings remember what people said from the week before and ask these thoughtful questions that show they care. Village, thank you. You're doing a great job at this. Now let's do it more and more. Let's grow even more. Let's find more creative ways to do this. Let's pray for each other. Let's encourage one another. So then... Paul goes on in verses 9 and 10. It's this encouragement to excel in brotherly love. But then he gives this other list. And at first I had this list separate, but then as I studied it, I realized this is actually, these are subpoints to brotherly love. And, and really, if you think about this list of, of what he says to watch out for or what he says to do, these are all things that are destroyers of brotherly love. These are things that get in the way of how we interact horizontally, of good relationships horizontally. And he's saying, okay, here's some things to work on. And probably, and we're we're guessing a little bit here, but probably the majority of the church was doing well, but a few people had some of these issues. Otherwise, Paul probably wouldn't be addressing them after he got the report back from Timothy. So remember, Timothy comes back, gets a report. Paul writes this letter, and he's probably addressing some things that Timothy noticed. And he's saying, you're doing great, but we can work on it more and more. Let me give you three ideas of where to work on it. And in love and in diplomacy, he points out three areas of weakness. And these are helpful for us to understand. The first is beware of contentiousness. Beware of contentiousness. Rather, live quietly. And so verse 11 there, the first, and these are staccato instructions, just one after another. He says, and to aspire to live quietly. Now, this does not mean that we should never talk. This does not mean that we should never turn our stereos above 10 or whatever the numbers are on the dot. Now, that's probably just a wise thing of being a good neighbor. But he's saying, seek after these things, aspire, value these things, but that live quietly is the strange word in in Greek that, that probably means more peacefully or restraining from disturbing activity, which is why I used contentiousness 
in the point because I think that helps us understand what he's saying here. Um, to, one author said it's, it's really saying to, to restlessly be still. And there's a play on words here. Aspire means to strive, be ambitious, to do this, and then live quietly. It says don't have ambition, don't strive, don't. And so it's, it's this idea of work hard to be peaceful, to not cause grief in our relationships, to not start arguments, to not be argumentative, to find ways to be winsome in our speech. A couple authors, that, a phrase that I that helped me don't stir up trouble or be obnoxious. You know, we, we all have enough personal habits that make us obnoxious enough. We don't need to add to it by how we talk. Don't be obnoxious. And this is the first thing Paul mentions when he says, pleasing God is about brotherly love. And let's work on this point. Some of you are stirring up trouble. Proverbs seventeen fourteen. There's a couple, all kinds of proverbs about our speech, which means it's an issue and something we work on. Proverbs seventeen fourteen. The beginning of strife is like letting out water. So quit before the quarrel breaks out. That's just great advice. Once you start with strife, once you start a discussion, it's like letting out water, like opening up the floodgates of a dam. I think we all understand this on Facebook. One comment. And you can just un- unleash this fury of comments. One comment where we haven't chosen our words well. And I see this all over the place. I-, I-, I have friends all over the states and I see people sacrificing their Christianity for the sake of being right. And this says live, live quietly, not contentiously. It doesn't mean we can't share our opinions, but we do it in a wholesome, winsome, loving way. I had a, a post that I responded to someone Friday night and I put it up. And, and actually, I, I think I wrote it pretty lovingly. Um, but then about five minutes later, I hit delete because I thought about it and said, this, this adds nothing to making peace here. This isn't going to convince anyone. This, isn't, this accomplishes nothing except opening the floodgates to more comments. And so I need to choose to not go there and choose to please God with my brotherly love by not going there. And it's hard. I have a hard time with this. I don't think I'm the only one. Because I'm not the only one that thinks they're right all the time. And thinks we can change other people's minds. And if you're, if you're posting on Facebook, here's one thing I'd recommend. Write your post out and wait an hour or two. Maybe have someone else read it and then see if you should post it. Don't be afraid to delete postings. Don't be afraid to say, I'm sorry. Let's value loving one another as God does. Proverbs 20, verse 3. Again, it's another proverb. It is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. Ouch. Oh, that hurts. And oh, that's hard to put into practice. It's an honor to stay aloof from strife, to stay away from it, to stay above it. Here's the thing. It's not your and I's place to correct every person and to teach every person what's right. Spiritually or politically. Spiritually, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. I'd argue that's the same true of of most views in life. 
It's the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. So the first thing that destroys brotherly love that he says be aware of is contentiousness. Rather live quietly. The second thing, and he comes back again, it's the next phrase in that verse, and to mind your own affairs. And so the danger here is meddlesomeness. Meddlesomeness. Maybe a word, maybe not a word. Do you understand what it means? Meddlesomeness, rather mind your own business. Mind your own affairs. That's what it literally means. And it's similar to live a quiet life. That's contentiousness. This is, you don't have to be buttoned into everyone else's life. Do you know whose affairs and and responsibilities are your first priority? Yours. Yours. And, and, And when you have those perfectly in place and when you are walking perfectly with God, then we can start maybe considering meddling. Proverbs 25, 17. Let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house, especially during social distancing, um, lest he have his fill of you and hate you. The proverb says, don't butt in too much or he's not going to like you, right? I'm not making this up. We know this to be true. In, in counseling, sometimes we talk about our yard and our neighbor's yard. And our yard is our responsibility, my views, my reactions, how I treat people. My neighbor's yard, that's his responsibility, right? I don't go trim the, the bushes in my neighbor's yard to how I like them. He would, he would be mad. He would have legal recourse. I trim the bushes in my yard to how I like them. And Paul is reminding people, mind your own affairs. Work on yourself. Now this doesn't, again, there's balance to all of these things. This doesn't mean we don't hold each other accountable. This doesn't mean that we don't practice Matthew 18 and go and address sin, but we do that in a loving, brotherly love way. And so Paul is dealing with the other side of those extremes. And so so I hope we we can understand the nuances here that we're dealing with the, the dangers, that we're dealing with how these are abused. You know, there, there are times maybe we meddle with our neighbors when our kids take in their trash cans for them so they don't have to or, or whatever. And, and, but they don't think of that as meddling. <laughs> that, that's helping each other. And so we have to understand the, the, the different ways of understanding this. So Paul says, beware of contentiousness. Beware of being meddlesome. And the third one, which is a really interesting combination, beware of idleness. Beware of idleness, rather work hard. So he says, aspire to live quietly, mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you. So this apparently has been an issue. And we're not quite sure why. Some, a, a lot of scholars think that maybe, especially with what we're going to cover starting next week, that, that maybe since they were so looking for the return of Christ, that they're like, hey, I don't have to work. He's coming back next month. I'm just going to eat your food and we're going to go to heaven together. And Paul's saying, no, no, work with your hands. Take personal responsibility for your life. And, and, and so this instruction is to steadily work at your occupation, to not live off others, to not be mooches. I don't know if that, that word's used anymore. That was, we use that. Don't mooch off other people. Hold your own. Now, now again, the balance here, and we know from the Acts church in Acts 2, 3, 4, 5, we know that there's also commands to meet each other's needs, right? 
And so this is not talking about legitimate needs or things that happen or being laid off or something like that. What this is talking about, and it appears that there was plenty of work to be had and people were choosing not to. That's a very different situation than being forced into hardship, right? And and so he's saying, if you're just choosing to be idle, if you're choosing not to work and not to take care of yourself and your family, that's a problem. And and that's going to come up later, actually, in Thessalonians. See, idleness, when, when we choose to be idle, whether it be not working when we can, whether it be those of you in school not doing schoolwork or, or whatever, just looking for entertainment all the time, when we choose to be idle, it harms our reputation and it harms our testimony. Okay, makes sense? And, and, and really, it's a, it's a sign of childhood. It's a sign of self-centeredness. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to live as I please instead of I'm going to please God. And so we have to ask some questions from this. How much do I ask of others? How much do I expect from others? Well, we're brothers in Christ. They should help me out with this. Or do I take responsibility for my, my own yard and my own stuff? We've seen Paul already mention this. This is, this is why he brought up in ministry, I've chosen not to be a burden to you. I don't, I don't want to take your money. I'm a tent maker because I'm not going to be a burden to others. One other thing that I want to mention here, catch the words that he uses. It doesn't just say to work hard. It says work with your hands. And I'm not saying everyone has to have work that they work with their hands on. But Paul is reminding them, especially in that culture where it looks as if there were classes in the city and, and you had a, a class that were um, the, the overseeing class and then they had their patrons underneath them. Um, it looks as if different types of labor were categorized into different classes. Oh, oh, I would never do manual labor. You want me to, to, to dig something? <laughs> no, no, no. That's for so-and-so. That looks like the attitudes of, and we can fall into that, right? I mean, one of the things that we've done with interns here and, and um, as people have come on to ministry here, one of the things we have them do is like clean bathrooms and sweep up things. And I want to see if they're willing to. That's part of all of our jobs every day here. And so let's see if they're willing to. And so Paul is, is, is reminding them, don't look down on manual labor. God doesn't. Paul made tents and worked with his hands. Adam and Eve were gardeners. Jesus, he was a builder, a carpenter. There is no shame in hard work, any job, any legal job. There is no shame in hard work. We must be careful not to group jobs into the spectacular and the mundane and and change how we view people based on what job they have. Quite frankly, I respect any man that is willing to work hard at any career and provide for his family. My respect level goes like this. That's a little bit of what Paul is talking about. Beware of these pitfalls. And then in verse 12, finally, sorry, I am drawing to a close. (laughs) In verse 12, Paul says, why watch out for these things? What difference does it make? Why beware of these pitfalls? And he gives two things. And I'll just give you the notes right now and then we can read the verse. The first is to preserve a good testimony for the gospel. And the second is to not take advantage of brothers and sisters in Christ. To preserve a good testimony for the gospel, to not take advantage of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 12 says this, 
so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Those are two phrases. That's the two points. Pretty, pretty straightforward. So that you may walk properly before outsiders. Who's the outsiders here is the question we should ask. And always come to Scripture with questions and try to figure it out. The outsiders here are non-believers because he's talking to the church. And so when he says that you may walk properly before outsiders, he's saying that you'll be able to have the respect of outsiders. You won't compromise your testimony to those that so desperately need to hear about Christ. Village, we have the best news ever. We have the answer to this fallen world. That, that we are in sin, that, that we as a people, as human beings, have fallen into sin, but God still loved us and he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins, to take the penalty for those sins, to bear those sins on him. That if we will confess our sins, if we will repent, he will forgive and give us eternal life. That is not light news. I know we hear it, but that is amazing news. And if you've never heard that before, there is answers. There is forgiveness to be had by following Christ and repenting. There is eternal life in Christ. But so many times we can, we can turn people off to the gospel by how we act and how we live. The gospel is offensive enough. Just saying people that they're sinners is offensive enough. And we, that needs to be part of the gospel. We don't need to add to that how I act to be offensive. So Paul says, no, we do these things and we're not contentious and we're not idle and we're not meddlesome so that we can have a good testimony. Jesus said, by this all men will know you're my disciples if you love one another. We, we can't separate our testimony from how we love each other. We can't. And, and if, if we want to just be by ourselves and not be part of the church and not love others in the church, our testimony will always suffer. In the third century, Tertullian, he wrote this, that Romans would say this about Christians, see how they love one another. Romans who, who were anti-Christian, their comment was, see how they love one another. It made that much of a difference in their testimony. Here's a thought. Unbelievers don't separate your behavior from your faith. Right? They just see you as a Christian, and that's a package deal. How you act and what you say you believe. I would argue there's a lot of wisdom to that. We can separate the two, and we shouldn't. So how are we acting? Is it reflecting well on the Father? It pleases God when we love one another well because it also gives a great testimony of what his family should look like. Think about that. Have you, have you done anything in the last week that would maybe push someone away from the gospel rather than toward the gospel? I, I know that the low-hanging fruit there again is social media. I'll let you think about that. But beyond that, not just how have all my interactions, have any of them pushed people away from Christ, but have any of them drawn people to Christ? That's a valid question. It's a hard question. So why watch out for these things? Why care so much about brotherly love? To preserve a good testimony for the gospel. The second point he makes in that phrase, and be dependent on no one, is what we've sort of already talked about under idleness, to not take advantage of our brothers and sisters in Christ. To not be a burden. 
And, and so the idea here is to be independent, to be supporting yourself. Think of providing for yourself in life independent, not a weight on people. And again, this isn't talking about sudden happenings or things that temporarily happen. This is talking about choosing to live this, this way. Am I a burden on others or am I bearing one another's burdens? See, the thing here is when we have personal responsibility, not a fierce independence that says I don't need anyone, but when we take personal responsibility for our lives, we then are in a place where we can bear others' burdens that are going through temporary things. If we are constantly relying on other people and a burden on other people, it is so hard to be a blessing because we're just take, 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 take. But Paul is saying, don't take advantage of other people. Don't, don't be dependent on people when you don't have to be. Don't expect others to carry a load for you. And so much of this is expecting. We, we, you can tell the difference between someone that expects you to do something for them and someone that's in real need. And we know when someone's in real need, man, we've got to jump in and help. Like that early church in 1 Timothy 6.18, they are to do good, to be rich in good works. Those that have funds, to, to do good, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share. So we know that we are to share, but at the same time, we're to try, to try to not be a burden on each other when it's by our own choice. It's hard to hold both of those together, but they're both true. Are we able to, to love others well? Are we living a lifestyle that lets us love others well? And some good words from Paul today, from the Holy Spirit through his word, reminding us that that our big picture, the big desire is how can we please dad? How can we please our holy God? He said there's two ways, live a, a pure and holy life, which we'll get to, and live in brotherly love. And then he gives these things to watch out for and just sort of expands on that. So village... I commend you for how you're loving each other. Now let's go do that more and more this week and find new and creative ways to do it. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, we love you because you first loved us. We love each other because you first loved us. And so Lord, help us to grow in this area, um, to find even, even more ways to grow in the weeks to come, to find more ways to be your church. Lord, I pray that when people visit Village, when people see Village, they would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we love believers here, that we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, I also pray for the churches that are meeting right now or live streaming right now or, or listening in their homes to recordings right now. I pray that you would give every one of those pastors the strength to preach your word. Lord, give them the leadership in these hard decisions to be able to shepherd their flocks well, that we as a group of churches in this area can make a difference for this community for you. Lord, that we can show even by our testimony, by how we love other churches, that there's a difference here and that you make that difference. Lord, I pray that we would be a light for you and shine brightly on a canvas of dark times. Lord, use us for your glory and for your pleasure. In your name, amen.